Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker, and we have episode 284 for August 8th, 2022. Uh, I got a bunch of news for you this week, as, <laughs> as is commonly the case. A lot of it's not good. Some of it is, though. And of course, I'll wrap it up with my tip of the week. Uh, before we get to all that, uh, you may have noticed if you looked at your podcast app that the podcast artwork has been updated. I'm moving everything. I'm rebranding everything. And it turns out there's a lot of nooks and crannies I still got to find. Uh, but all my social media and everything is going to the logo that I had created last year that I really like. Uh, so I'm changing all the artwork around to that. So if you notice that it has changed, it's gone from a dark blue to kind of a yellow orange uh, fiery sort of thing, a dragon themed thing. So you're, you're going to notice that it, uh, if it doesn't happen right away, it'll happen soon on your podcast app. Sometimes it takes a little while for these changes to get picked up by the podcast apps. But when it does change, that's why. Don't freak out. Also, if you follow me on any kind of social media, you'll you'll notice over the next few weeks, I'm going to start changing uh, all the branding around from that blue bluish uh, dragon stuff to the, the newer one, uh, including the logo. Uh, and the fifth edition of the book, when it comes out, will also be branded that way too, hopefully. So just trying to consolidate everything around the new logo. All right, so I am heading to DEF CON this week. After months and months of planning and looking forward to this, it's finally going to happen. I'm super, super psyched. Going to Las Vegas, Nevada, baby. Uh, it's going to be really hot. I hope they have some water while <laughs> when I get there, because apparently they're running out. Now, I've been to Vegas many, many times, so you know I'm probably not going to do a lot of gambling or do go see shows. I'll be spending basically the entire time I'm there uh, doing the conference, because even when the conference isn't going, there's you know parties and Hacker Jeopardy and uh, all sorts of fun things going on related to the con. So um, it's going to be uh, five solid days and and late nights of partying and hacking and meeting people and interviewing people and soaking up the ambiance that is DEF CON. So I uh, really cannot wait. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I am going to be trying to get some kind of little short interview clips as I walk around. I've got this nice portable recording rig now, thanks to my patrons. And uh, I will try to get some interesting interviews as I walk around. But uh, the big one's going to be Jeff Moss, the founder of DEF CON, aka Dark Tangent. I am working out the details of that interview. We will be talking again this year. Cannot wait. And uh, th this being the big 3-0, there, there's kind of a nostalgia thing here. So we're probably going to talk a lot about you know, what it was like starting this whole thing and how it's grown in the last 30 years. And of course, a little bit about, you know, where it's going to go from here. Uh, but I'm really hoping to get some fun, nostalgic stories from Jeff about this whole process. And uh, I'm working up some other fun questions. So anyway, that interview will be coming. You'll uh, probably hear that later on this month. Now, I am planning a little get together, a little kind of informal get together for some drinks, probably on Thursday afternoon for any of you who might be in Vegas and attending. Um, stay tuned at the end of the show if you're interested in that, and I'll give you a little bit more info. All right, but we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, just a quick summary. Uh, Amazon is in a couple different stories this this uh, this week. Uh, we'll start off with those. Amazon is looking to buy iRobot, the maker of those nifty little Roomba automatic vacuum cleaners. Uh, but <laughs> these vacuum cleaners know a lot about your house, as it turns out. The older ones used to just kind of bounce around, but the newer ones actually map your house. So do you want Amazon having a map of your house? And it could be worse than that. We'll talk about that. Uh, also, actually, even more scary is Amazon's looking to get right into healthcare. 
they're looking to buy this company and get into directly providing healthcare. And so that's kind of scary. Google has delayed yet again its uh, <laughs> its removal of support for third-party cookies in the Chrome browser. We haven't talked a lot about quantum computing and how it might affect our encryption. I do actually hope to have a story on that or an interview on that in the, in the near future. But NIST, the government organization, has been coming up with what we call post-quantum cryptography algorithms uh, that should stand up to quantum computing. But it turns out one of those was quickly shot down. But it's, it's, it's still a good thing. I'll, I'll tell you more about that uh, in a minute. I found a great article about open source software security that I want to read. It's really long. I'm just going to uh, talk, uh, read part of it, but it's got some great points that I want to bring up. So I'm going to read a little bit of an article about that. I've got a very interesting article that is showing how quickly hackers are now turning on a dime when um, when new exploits are announced and how quickly they take those announced exploits and start trying to exploit them. I found another great article about all the data that our cars are collecting. And of course, we talked to Andre Miko last year from Privacy for Cars. Um, and I've talked about this off and on, but it's really a, kind of a... An, it's not really a new area because this has been going on for a long time, but it, it's getting a lot of focus, which it should. Uh, and this article will help explain why. T-Mobile has been forced to pay up to a half a billion dollars for one of the largest data breaches in history. Samsung has a new repair mode that uh, lets the technicians look at your phone, but not your data, which is really cool. And last up, there are millions of people infected by auto-starting Android malware. And I'm going to tell you which apps you need to be deleting right away. And then that will lead nicely into the tip of the week. All right, so plenty to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, this is from Mashable. Uh, and this is about Am uh, Amazon wanting to buy iRobot, the maker of the Roomba robotic vacuums. Would you give Amazon the layout to your home? Well, soon you may not have a choice if you're a Roomba customer. In a statement released on Friday, the e-commerce giant announced it was acquiring iRobot, the company best known as the maker of the popular vacuuming robot Roomba. Amazon will purchase the consumer robot company in an all-cash deal for around $1.7 billion. The deal, however, still needs to be approved by regulators. It's not hard to imagine what an Amazon-owned Roomba would look like. For starters, the company could lower the barrier to entry by subsidizing the cost of the devices and even begin offering users subscription options to replace different Roomba parts. But it will most likely integrate ALXEA, I'm trying not to say the word, its voice-controlled AI assistant into the robot vacuum. However, privacy experts aren't enamored with these possibilities. In fact, they are concerned about what a merger between the e-commerce giant and a company with home mapping abilities could eventually mean for consumers' data. Roomba vacuums have already been scrutinized over the data they collect. In order for these robots to work, the devices must map out your house. Actually, not true. They didn't use to work that way, but it's more efficient that way. That data is then collected by iRobot and sometimes even shared with third parties. Amazon has increasingly been moving into the smart home product space. A report from market insights firm Strategy Analytics notes that Amazon's Ring Doorbell, another popular connected device, sold around 1.4 million units in 2021 alone. This iRobot acquisition would bring Amazon's connected devices into even more households. According to iRobot, the company has sold more than 40 million of its consumer robots since 2021. At this point, it's unclear what Amazon has in mind for iRobot's home mapping data. While consumers may be excited about the potential for Roomba to soon mimic Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons, they should be wary about very real privacy concerns. 
Robert Weitzman, the president of the consumer advocacy organization Public Citizen, said, quote, The last thing Americans on the world need is Amazon vacuuming up even more of our personal information. I see what you did there. This is not just about Amazon selling another device in its marketplace. It's about the company gaining still more intimate details of our lives to gain unfair market advantage and sell us more stuff, unquote. So while the ability to summon ALXEA to go clean your room may be enticing, maybe we should be practicing the command, hey, uh, ALXEA, stop collecting my data. Yeah, okay, so so here's the thing. So these robot vacuums are cool. I've actually had one over the years. And uh, they're fun, they're interesting, uh, they're neat. And the old ones would just bounce around like kind of randomly. And they basically just bounce around long enough till they figure they got everything. And then they'd go back into, into their, little, uh, their little cradle and recharge for the next round. And the way they would find their little cradles, these little cradles give out some sort of signal, either an infrared signal or an RF signal that these guys could kind of hone in on, you know, like a beacon. And then they could go home and, and drive into their cradle so they could recharge. But the newer ones actually have cameras built in so that they can, with these very low resolution cameras, look for obstacles and eventually map out your home so that they can bounce around for the first while. And then after a while, they just know where your couch is and where the walls are and things like that. So they could be more efficient about how they clean up your room. I mean, that makes sense, right? Uh, you can apparently actually see these maps. If you have one of these iRobot devices, these Roomba devices that can map your home uh, with the app, I think you're, you can bring up and see what it what it sees. You can see its map, but know that they are also sharing that map, not only with iRobot, but apparently uh, with third parties as well. And now Amazon wants this. So these cameras are probably really crappy and they're probably only looking at things at like rodent eye view, right? Like two inches off the ground. Uh, you know, because that's where its optical—that's where its obstacles lie. But <laughs> if I were Amazon buying these things, I might be going to the hardware developers and saying, you know, hey, you know, can we, uh, you know, can we get a better camera in there, or can we get some lidar put in there? You know, things that would actually let me really map out what's in the house. I mean, can you imagine all the wealth of information that Amazon could get from your house? Like, hey. You know, I see you bought a new TV, maybe, you know, or maybe, or maybe I see you have an old TV and maybe wouldn't you like this new one? It would fit exactly in the same space that you've got it there. It would fit on that cabinet because I can, I could see how big your, your entertainment center is and this would fit perfectly there. Or, you know, Hey, the feng shui in your house is all off. You know, wouldn't you, you know, shouldn't you rearrange things like this? And Oh, wouldn't these nice accents and maybe these end tables look good here <laughs> or, I've noticed Johnny is looking a little depressed, you know, maybe here's some books on depression or healthy eating habits because, you know, he hasn't been eating well either. You know, I mean, if, if you've got a little spy in your house with a camera that could be doing all sorts of weird recognition, man, that gets super creepy. Now, you know, maybe they won't do that. I'm just saying we got to start worrying about these things because these this technology is super cheap and and it's just getting easier and easier for companies to surveil us. And I find this personally pretty creepy, but all that said, it's not as creepy as this next one. I don't think so. Let, let's, let's get to the next article. This is from time magazine. Uh, and it's about Amazon getting into healthcare. Patient privacy has been inviolable since the time of Hippocrates in 400 BC. I'd probably take some issue with that, but okay. That may be about to end. Last week, Amazon announced it is going to acquire One Medical, a healthcare provider with over 700,000 patients. Big tech has flirted with healthcare for years. Amazon's direct entry into primary healthcare is a turning point. It will increase the perils of surveillance capitalism with implications for everyone. 
Amazon knows our guilty pleasures, what we buy, what pills we buy, and what we watch and read and listen to. Its devices listen in our homes and peep out of our door. Uh, The Amazon Ring doorbells what they're talking about. Uh, Recent scandals revealed that Amazon uses the data collected for supposedly innocent reasons in ways that betray our trust. Amazon staff say there are no limits on how Amazon uses this data internally. According to Amazon's former head of information security, quote, we have no idea where our effing data is, unquote. And they actually printed the word. I'm surprised. Uh, One medical receives health information about children, families, the elderly, and vulnerable. That includes information about substance abuse, mental health issues, and other intimate conditions. We cannot be confident that Amazon will treat this new data any any better than it's treated its existing data horde. Our secrets are not safe inside of Amazon, and it is not just consumers who are at risk. Other companies that compete with or sell through Amazon will almost certainly be harmed. Amazon uses data collected from one part of its business to help other parts. For example, it competes with retailers that sell on its platform by exploiting its insider data about their businesses. More data, especially intimate data, increases Amazon's market power over consumers and competitors. If we allow Amazon to run our medical clinics, will we also allow Amazon to operate health insurance services too? We face a bleak future where an all-knowing behemoth exploits our intimate vulnerabilities not to provide care to us, but to capture revenue for itself. This concern is not hypothetical. The business model employed by internet giants, surveillance capitalism, is defined by the extraction of data from all sources, the creation of models of collective and individual human behavior, and the use of global apps like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Amazon uh, to steer users toward desired behaviors. We have already witnessed massive harms from surveillance capitalism, including the undermining of elections in the U.S. and other countries, the amplification of disinformation during a pandemic, and ethnic cleansing in Myanmar. Like Amazon, Google and Microsoft have sought and won major contracts with the federal government, notably the Department of Defense. Google has built a stronghold in public education. To date, policymakers have not acted on warnings about the threats to civil liberties that might result from surveillance capitalists managing government databases and educational systems. What makes Amazon's acquisition of One Medical especially troubling is that it would enable the extension of surveillance capitalism beyond advertising-driven platforms into the real world, and it would do so in healthcare, one of the most sensitive categories of data. Amazon's acquisition of One Medical requires regulatory approval. This transaction gives the Federal Trade Commission an opportunity to exercise not only its duty under antitrust law, but also its new mandate to protect consumer privacy. Past efforts to safeguard consumer privacy under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, have proved to be inadequate, as data from medical tests, prescriptions, wellness applications, and the like are not protected. There is also ambiguity about how HIPAA applies to models created from protected data. We do not know that Amazon will misuse data it gathers from one medical, but there is no reason to take that risk. Consumers have little protection today from surveillance capitalism. The few initiatives in Congress barely scratch the surface of the problem. That leaves the FTC as the best hope for protecting consumers from potentially predatory behavior. Consumer protection used to be a core function of government. It should be again. The harms from unregulated use of personal data are well known and understood. There's no excuse for further delay. Blocking Amazon's proposed acquisition of One Medical will, will not solve the problem, but it will send an essential message that the government will finally use the tools at its disposal to protect Americans. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is a really, really bad idea. But, you know, the, F- the FTC certainly should look into it and, and do some research and, and decide from data and from, you know, some smart due diligence to figure out if this is bad or not. But it sure looks bad to me. 
And it's something that just creeps me out that these companies just know too much and there's no real regulation on what they can do with this data. Not enough, certainly. And medical data, as this article says, is one of the most possible personal things that you could you could share about somebody. So, you know, I don't want Amazon knowing my medical information and then turning around and suggesting products to me based on that. All right, real quick, this is from Hacker News, and this will shock nobody. Google on Wednesday said it's once again delaying its plans to turn off third-party cookies in the Chrome web browser from late 2023 to the second half of 2024. Uh, this is a quote from Anthony Chavez, vice president of the Privacy Sandbox. That's um, Google's privacy group. It says, quote, the most consistent feedback we've received is the need for more time to evaluate and test the new Privacy Sandbox technologies before deprecating third-party cookies in Chrome, unquote. In keeping this in mind, the internet and ad tech giant says this taking a, quote-unquote, deliberate approach and extending the testing window for its ongoing privacy sandbox initiatives prior to phasing out third-party cookies. While Google had originally planned to roll out the feature in early 2022, it revised the timeline in June 2021, pushing its proposal to transition from third-party cookies over to a over a three-month period, starting in mid-2023 and ending in late 2023. The second extension comes as Google announced the Topics API as a replacement for Flock, the Federated Learning of Cohorts, in January 2022, following it up with the developer preview and Privacy Sandbox for Android in May. Under the new plan, Privacy Sandbox trials are expected to be expanded to users globally next month. Uh, with the number of users included in the test ramped up throughout the next of the year, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so it's they're delaying it. <laughs> I'm not even going to finish this article. There's two problems here, actually. So Google is going to replace it with something else that actually I think does have some promise. But it kind of makes Google even more in control of how this data is uh, kept and shared and used. And I think Google's worried about perhaps triggering antitrust investigations if they get too much control over this data through their own browser. So, you know, these people have had plenty of time to figure this stuff out. And if you don't push them, it's never going to happen. But I mean, the fact of the matter is Google and all these other companies that are telling Google to wait on this are just too addicted to our data. And, and they can't see a world where they don't have access to as much data as they have today. All right, next up, this is something I've been a topic I've been hoping to touch on at some point. And so I'll, I'll read this article real quick. I'll need to preface it before I get into it. Uh, but I really want to have a whole show on this at some point. So I almost had read an article about this recently, and I think I shelved it. But NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology here in the United States, one of the things they do of the many things they do is they they vet encryption algorithms and decide which ones are really good. They put them through their paces. It's a long and rigorous process and eventually come up with a set of recommendations that they say, okay, these have been, these have run the gauntlet and survived. And these are the ones that we recommend people use. And they don't even pick just one. They pick multiple, which is smart, right? Because if for some reason something gets through the cracks and, and is found to be vulnerable, then you've got backups ready to go. All right. And one more thing before we get into this article, quantum computing is a new type of computing that can do certain calculations much faster than current computer technology. The way a lot of encryption works is it uses math to create really hard problems. It's like easy to go one way and really hard to go backwards. And so to do encryption, they come up with these really hard problems to solve uh, so that when something is encrypted, if you throw a computer at it and try to reverse engineer that 
problem. If you try to reverse the encryption, it's really, really, really difficult. Turns out some of the algorithms we've been using over the years rely on a couple key things being hard to do. One of those is factoring very large prime numbers. Uh, and it turns out that it looks like quantum computers when they become a thing and that that's still some years off, but when they become a thing, will make easy work of factoring large primes. So that's a problem. So they've already for many years now been working on solutions to that, coming up with encryption standards that will be resistant to the kind of math that quantum computers are good at doing. So anyway, with all that as background, let me read this article from Ars Technica or just part of this article from Ars Technica. In the U.S. government's ongoing campaign to protect data in the age of quantum computers, a new and powerful attack that used a single traditional computer to completely break a fourth-round candidate highlights the risks involved in standardizing the next generation of encryption algorithms. Last month, the U.S. Department of Commerce's National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, selected four post-quantum computing encryption algorithms to replace algorithms like RSA, Diffie-Hellman, and the elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, which are unable to withstand attacks from a quantum computer. In the same move, NIST advanced four additional algorithms as potential replacements pending further testing in hopes one or more of them may be a suitable encryption alternative in a post-quantum world. The new attack breaks SIKE, or PSYCH, which is one of the latter four additional algorithms. The attack has no impact on the four PQC, or post-quantum computing, PQC algorithms selected by NIST as approved standards, all of which rely on completely different mathematical techniques that, than PSYCH. PSYCH, short for Super Singular Isogeny Key Encapsulation, say that five times fast, is now likely out of the running thanks to research that was published over the weekend by researchers from the Computer Security and Industrial Cryptography Group at KU Leuven. The paper titled An Efficient Key Recovery Attack on SIDH described a technique that uses complex mathematics and a single traditional PC to recover encryption keys protecting the psych-protected transactions. The entire process requires only about an hour's time. Psych is the second NIST-designated PQC candidate to be invalidated this year. In February, IBM postdoc researcher uh, Ward Bulens uh, published research that broke Rainbow, a cryptographic signature scheme, with its security. Uh, and then the article goes on, but I just want to read this one little snippet here that I think is interesting. So the NIST PQC replacement campaign has been running for five years, and here's a brief history. So round one was in 2017, and there were 69 candidates. Round two is in 2019, and there were 26 candidates left at that point. And the third round was 2020, seven finalists and eight alternates. And then just this year, just recently, uh, in 2022, three finalists and one alternate selected as standards, and then Psych and three additional alternates selected it uh, as advanced to the fourth round. So the upshot here is that I wanted to let you know that if you've read articles about how encryption is going to be a thing of the past because quantum computers are going to be able to hack anything, that's not true. While, yes, our current encryption schemes may be vulnerable to the type of math that quantum computers are really good at doing, uh, we have come up with algorithms that will be difficult for quantum computers to hack. Now, it turns out that one of these was actually easy for regular computers using regular techniques to hack. So we, you know, it's kind of a shame that that got through, but that's why we do this. That's why there's a vetting process. And you should feel good knowing that we've spent years on this 
and we have multiple alternates. We've done a lot of work on this. And the fact that, you know, some of these alternates are getting shot down, that's actually a good thing. We need to vet these things and we need to find holes now instead of when we need them. And who knows how many years it's going to be before quantum computing is really going to be a, a big enough threat for the average person. But, you know, we're, we're ahead of the game, so don't worry about it. All right, another article here from Ars Technica in a totally different vein uh, and actually a positive story. And this is about Samsung's new repair mode. Samsung is introducing an interesting new feature for people sending in their Galaxy phones for repair. It's called repair mode. When shipping off your phone, you might want to do something to protect your data. And the new feature sounds like a great solution. It locks down your data, but not your phone. Handling data during a mail-in repair process is tough. You could wipe your phone, but that's a big hassle. You don't want to just send in a completely locked down device as technicians can't thoroughly test it if they're locked out of everything. While in repair mode, technicians can still poke around in your device and test everything, but they'll only see the default apps with blank data. When you get your device back, you can re-authenticate and disable repair mode and you'll get all your data back. This feature was first spotted by Sam Mobile, and Sa uh, which I don't know what that is, some website or something. And Samsung has so far only announced the feature in Korean in a Korean press release. Repair mode can be turned on from the settings menu, and Samsung says, uh, and this is through a Google translation, quote, you won't be able to access your personal data, such as photos, messages, and accounts, unquote. And anyone with the phone will, quote, only use the default installed apps, unquote. Repair mode can be exited the same way, though you'll need to authenticate with a pattern pen or fingerprint. Samsung doesn't explain how the feature works, but Android has a number of built-in capabilities that would make it relatively simple to implement such a feature. Android supports multiple user accounts, which allow for multiple separate sets of apps and data. It wouldn't take much to lock down the primary user and spin up a guest user with no data for the repair people to work with. It's also possible that Samsung is locking down the entire user data partition. Repair technicians could get a temporary data store and access to the read-only system partition, which uh, houses all the OS files uh, that would need testing. However the feature works, it's a great idea, and it's something that we'd like to see other manufacturers implement. For now, repair mode is only available on one model of device and only in Korea, but Samsung says it will get a wider rollout in the future. Uh, so yeah, so this is a real problem, one that I'm surprised that, frankly, Apple hasn't solved. I, I don't think Apple has anything along these lines. But for one thing, Apple doesn't have multi-user support yet. Um, so if you've got an iPad or an iPhone, it's tied to one user. And I think multi-user support would be really nice. Actually, what would really be a nice first step is just a guest mode. You know, like if you want to hand a phone off to your <laughs> to your three-year-old and who wants to play a game, it'd be nice to kind of, you know, put it in a, a nerf mode where he really can't do anything horrible with the phone and still he can play whatever game he wants to play, right? Um, or if someone says, you know, hey, I I need to borrow a phone, my battery's just dead, I need to make an emergency phone call, it'd be nice if I could quickly put it in some kind of mode where uh, all they could do is dial the number. And by the way, I, I know there actually are ways to do that, uh, and that is something I may cover in eventual tip of the week. But in this repair case, what would really would be nice is to have this sort of a mode so they can actually use the phone, get to the apps, check that things are working, but not actually access any of your personal data. So I hope other manufacturers implement this as well. All right, next up, this is kind of a long article, but, uh, and actually I'm only reading part of it, but I think it's important. We've talked a lot about free and open source software on this show before, and this raises some really important points and has some really interesting statistics. So, uh, this is from Lawfare, um, and it's about open source security issues and how we secure open source software and why it's been such a problem. Open source is free software built collaboratively by a community of developers, often volunteers for public use. 
Google iPhones, the National Power Grid, surgical operating rooms, baby monitors, and military databases all run on this unique asset. However, open source has an urgent security problem. Open source is more ubiquitous and susceptible to persistent threats than ever before. Proprietary software has responded to threats by implementing thorough institutional security measures. The same care is not being given to open source software, primarily due to misaligned incentives. First, open source's primary beneficiaries, the software vendors who profit from its use, are free riders who lack incentives to contribute to the open source projects they use. Second, these software vendors also lack incentives to secure the open source software they use, introducing potentially vulnerable products into software into the software ecosystem. Attempts to address the open source problem do not go far enough. A comprehensive institutional response to the incentives problem is needed. An April 2022 industry study found that 97% of software contains some amount of open source. Open source code was found in 100% of systems related to computer hardware and semiconductors, cybersecurity, energy and clean tech, Internet of Things devices, and Internet and mobile app software. And it's not a negligible amount of open source. 78% of the code reviewed was open source. Most concerningly, 81% of the code bases containing open source had at least one vulnerability, with an average of five high-risk or critical vulnerabilities per application that remain unpatched. But open source's ubiquity and the characteristics that make it valuable are also what make it a unique risk to digital infrastructure. With proprietary code or closed software, a vulnerability would impact only that company and its customers. While these threats are still severe, like with SolarWinds, they are outmatched in scope by a vulnerability found in open source software. When the same piece of code is used by hundreds of thousands of networks internationally, one vulnerability in one project can take countless critical systems offline. The solution is not to move away from open source. Freely available software offers numerous public policy benefits, from decreasing barriers to entry to increasing innovation. Simply put, its primary beneficiaries save the cost of developing or purchasing proprietary code by using open source instead, allowing them to invest limited resources in other valuable endeavors. The United States owes its dominance in technological innovation in part to open source code. Moreover, open source is not inherently less secure than proprietary code. 89% of information technology executives believes that open source is at least as secure as proprietary code. Source code visibility has not been found to correlate to increased security risks. Rather, it can make projects more stable and secure. Indeed, corporations and government agencies recognize this. They are moving away from relying primarily on proprietary software or closed source systems toward using more open source code, according to a February Red Hat study. The issue is not the code. It's the lack of institutions securing the code. Open source, like many public goods, suffers a free rider problem. This resource is free so anyone can use it, and it is infinitely reproducible so any number of people can use it simultaneously. This is also technically true of roads and bridges. However, as many of us have personally experienced, roads and bridges are somewhat susceptible to overuse. Overuse without inadequate maintenance can lead to deterioration, sometimes rendering these resources wholly unusable. Open source also suffers an overuse problem. As projects grow in popularity, support for them needs to ramp up, but that is not happening. About 30% of open source projects, including some of the most popular ones, have only one maintainer, that is, a developer tasked with reviewing code contributions, scanning for vulnerabilities, and addressing reported bugs. The 2014 Heartbleed attack, which affected nearly one-fifth of the internet, exploited a vulnerability in an open source library that was maintained by two full-time developers who were solely responsible for over 500,000 lines of code. If software development resources were allocated optimally, then attacks like Heartbleed and Log4Shell could have been avoided. 
But as is characteristic of public goods, market participants lack incentives to correct this inefficiency. Companies can profit from open source without expending any resources to improve it. Psychologists call this the bystander effect. When multiple parties have the capacity to solve a problem, each individual party feels less responsibility to take action. Although securing the public good is in every company's self-interest, very few companies want to be the ones to take on that burden. There's little reason to think the market will correct itself without intervention. Researchers have called for targeted investments from government and consumers of open source projects to fund more full-time maintainers for important projects and entities offering open source security services for free. The open source community has requested upstream contributions from its consumers, support in the form of code review and improvement. The open source community is doing the best it can to maintain the large critical projects that the public relies on. To avoid open source potholes, its developers need resources for sustained maintenance. Tax dollars fund public roads and bridges. Open source deserves the same support. All right, so this article actually goes on and talks about some other potential solutions and other aspects to this problem. If you're interested in this at all, I would recommend that you read it. Of course, there's a link in the show notes. All right, here's a quick one from ZDNet. Uh, and this goes to show how quickly today the bad guys are jumping on newly discovered and uh, patched vulnerabilities. Attackers are becoming faster at exploiting previously undisclosed zero-day flaws, according to Palo Alto Networks. The company warns in its 2022 report covering 600 incident response, or IR cases, that attackers typically start scanning for vulnerabilities within 15 minutes of one being announced. Among this group are 2021's most significant flaws, including the Exchange Server Proxy Shell and Proxy Logon set of flaws, the persistent Apache Log4j flaws, aka Log4Shell, the Sonic Wall Zero Day Flaws, and Zoho Manage Engine Add Self Service Plus. I wasn't familiar with that one. Anyway, another major flaw that had attackers swiftly scanning the internet for affected devices were F5's critical bug in the big IP software, which uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, added to its growing known exploited vulnerabilities catalog in May. Palo Alto Networks saw 2,500 scans for it within 10 hours of it rolling out a signature for the flaw. While phishing remains the biggest method for initial access, accounting for 30% of IR cases, software vulnerabilities accounted for 31%. And then it goes on with some more stats that are interesting, so I'll just read them real quick. Brute force credential attacks, like password spraying, accounted for 9%, while smaller categories included previously compromised credentials, 6%, insider threat, 5%, social engineering, 5%, and abuse of trusted relationships or tools, 4%. All right, so I thought some of those statistics were interesting, so I threw those in here. It's a longer article. You can read more again if you want. But uh, the most significant thing of this is that the, the attackers are waiting for companies to announce fixes to problems. And you would think, well, at that point, it's too late. The problems are fixed. Except they're not. <laughs> Unless these devices are automatically updating and these automatic updates have already occurred, There are likely many devices out there that are still vulnerable to these attacks. So while they try to wait and try to give everybody a chance to fix these problems, they eventually have to announce these things, right? So if it's not an auto update, they got to say, hey, everybody, we found and fixed a flaw in your, you know, home router. Go update your routers right now. (laughs) But the bad guys paying attention to these press releases pick up on these things and immediately start scanning for these vulnerabilities. And what they're probably doing, they probably can't attack them that quickly. But what they can be doing is searching for devices on the internet, running these older versions of software, and figuring out where these vulnerabilities are so that they can then, you know, turn the the fix into an attack and then go back and attack those devices, which may or may not be updated. So this is, this is the cat and mouse game that we are currently playing. 
All right, next up, this is from The Markup, and this is a really long article. Uh, I'm only going to read you part of it, but this will give you an idea of how much data our cars have access to and are potentially sharing it with. Now, before I get into this article, some of these things are willing sharing. Like uh, these are some of the companies that are doing this are insurance companies. Like they, you know, install, you know, the Geico app on your phone, you'll get the Geico good driver app on your phone, and we'll get you a discount if you're a good driver. What that means, of course, is that they are tracking how you drive, which probably also comes with all sorts of other information, like when and where you drive, uh, how long you drive, all your location information, uh, which could be a privacy nightmare. Okay. So anyway, let me read this article from the markup. Today's cars are akin to smartphones with apps connected to the internet that collect huge amounts of data, some of which is highly personal. Most drivers have no idea what data is being transmitted from their vehicles, let alone who, who exactly is collecting, analyzing, and sharing that data, and with whom. A recent survey of drivers by the Automotive Industries Association of Canada found that only 28% of respondents had a clear understanding of the types of uh, data their vehicle produced, and the same percentage said that they had a clear understanding of who had access to that data. I am shocked that it's 28%. I would think it would be way lower than that. I don't even know all the data my car collects, let alone who it's shared with. I don't know how 28% of people think they do. All right, anyway. Welcome to the world of connected vehicle data, an ecosystem of dozens of businesses you never knew existed. The markup has identified 37 companies that are part of a rapidly growing connected vehicle data industry that seeks to monetize such data in an environment with few regulations governing its sale or use. While many of these companies stress they are using aggregated or anonymized data, the unique nature of location and movement data increases the potential for violations of user privacy. The connected vehicle data market is still in its early days, but analysts predict it will be worth anywhere from $300 billion to $800 billion by 2030. This nascent industry faces challenges as it is under pressure to reap profits in order to attract and satisfy investors. At the same time, the disclosure of sensitive and potentially identifying information from smartphones has prompted U.S. lawmakers to threaten sweeping crackdowns on the collection, transfer, and sale of location data, an effort that would create barriers for the industry as it grows. Nevertheless, the race is on to gather massive amounts of data points from drivers to feed the growing market for this information. The following is a data flow scenario for a vehicle with a factory-installed cellular connection, which, by the way, is almost every modern vehicle. Once a driver gets into a car, dozens of sensors emit data points that flow to the car's computer. The driver door is unlocked. A passenger is in the driver's seat. The internal cabin temperature is 86 degrees. The sunroof is opened. The ignition button is pressed. A trip has started from this location. These data points are processed by the car's computers and transmitted via cellular radio back to the car manufacturer's servers. As the trip continues, additional information is collected. The vehicle location and speed, whether the brakes are applied, which song is playing on the entertainment system, whether the headlights are on, or the oil level is low. The data then begins its own journey from the car manufacturer to companies known as vehicle data hubs and on through the connected vehicle data marketplace. The 37 companies identified by the markup do not make up the total universe of industry players, but the products they create and services they provide illustrate how the industry works and the breadth of its reach. And by the way, there's a whole table of these companies in the article. So if you want to get particular on which companies are doing this, uh, you can check it out there. A wash in vehicle data, most car manufacturers, or OEMs, uh, original equipment manufacturers, found themselves in an unfamiliar role. And this is a quote from Andrew Jackson, who's a research director at Ptolemus Consulting Group. And he says, quote, 
What has given rise to the industry is that most OEMs have recognized that they are better at making cars than they are at processing and handling data, unquote. This created an opening for a new kind of third-party data company, vehicle data hubs, which are at the center of the connected vehicle data market. Vehicle data hubs ingest vehicle and movement data from several different sources, from OEMs, from other connected vehicle data providers, directly from vehicles using aftermarket hardware, such as an onboard diagnostic dongle, that's an OBD2 port thing that you would put on, or from smartphone apps. The companies normalize the data and offer it to customers in the form of a dashboard or insights derived from analysis and other data products. Andrea Amico, who I interviewed on the show last fall, is founder and CEO of Privacy for Cars, an automotive data privacy company. Amico said of vehicle data hubs, quote, so there's many sources out there. Their business proposition is to collect all this data, create massive databases, try to standardize this data as much as possible, and then literally sell it. So that's their business model, unquote. Many vehicle data hubs market their massive troves of data for applications including insurance, traffic management, electric vehicle infrastructure planning, fleet management, advertising, mapping, city planning, and location intelligence. Many also promote their data as crucial to the future application of autonomous vehicles. When used to produce insights, the data is usually aggregated. The vehicle data may also be made available through an application programming interface or an API, which allows customers to integrate the data into their own apps and services. And by customers, in this case, I'm pretty sure they don't mean me and you. Anyway, many of these companies stress the steps they take to protect driver privacy. These protections generally come in two forms, anonymizing or aggregating driver data and clear consent controls clear consent controls. You got to be kidding me. But due to the sensitive nature of movement and location data, risks are high for violating user privacy. Bennett Cyphers, who I've also interviewed, uh, staff technologist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, said, quote, the more different ways you're being measured in your vehicle, the more likely it is that someone can take a stream of data and use the characteristics of all those different data points to fingerprint a particular user or a particular vehicle, unquote. Cypher said the amount of personal data collected in combination with a lack of regulations for its sale and use is troubling. And a final quote from uh, Bennett, he says, quote, when you see the volume of data that's up for sale and the lack of regulation in the vast majority of American states regarding how companies can use data, it seems like a match made in privacy hell, unquote. So yeah, this is, this is going to be a big deal. I mean, it's already a big deal, but I'm saying that it, there's, there's going to be some horror stories that hit the news based on this at some point. Our cars have built-in cellular modems that are constantly sending data back to the car manufacturers. Whether you paid for that service or not, a lot of cars, you know, have a subscription service for like a hotspotting service or, you know, hey, I can now play Spotify and, you know, on the built-in entertainment system if I would just pay for this internet subscription. But it's there and it's being used whether or not you're paying for that service or not. And it's being used to get data on you and your car. And we just keep adding more and more sensors to cars. Cars are actually talking to each other, which is great for traffic control and things like that. And maybe emergency situations. There's all going to be some really interesting and useful uses for this technology, but it's going to come with some real privacy problems if we don't do something quick. All right. Another article here from Ars Technica, and this is about the T-Mobile data breach and the settlement just reached on that. When T-Mobile compromised the sensitive personal information of more than 65 million current, former, and prospective customers in 2021, plaintiffs involved in the class action lawsuit complained that the company continued profiting off their data while attempting to cover up, quote, one of the largest and most consequential data breaches in U.S. history, unquote. Now, T-Mobile has admitted no guilt, 
but has agreed to pay a $500 million settlement pending a judge's approval, out of which $350 million will go to the settlement fund and, quote, at least $150 million, unquote, will go toward enhancing its data security measures through 2023. T-Mobile declined to tell ours about specific upcoming plans to improve data security, instead linking to a statement that outlines measures it has taken to quote-unquote double down on security in the past year. Right now, nobody knows exactly how big the individual payouts will be because that figure will depend on the total number of complaints filed if the settlement is reached. T-Mobile says everyone whose data has been compromised has been notified already, while lawmakers representing people using T-Mobile have said it's still possible more victims will be identified. A lot went wrong for T-Mobile's data breach to occur, but plaintiffs say the company broke the terms of its own privacy policy by not properly disclosing information about the breach or building proper safeguards to reasonably protect data in the first place. Perhaps the most straightforward example of T-Mobile not properly disclosing information about the breach was in its seeming cover-up of hacked accounts where social security numbers were leaked. In the complaint, customers shared text and email notifications that T-Mobile sent that generalized the data leak and did not caution that a customer's social security number was leaked when it was. But when it wasn't, T-Mobile sent different notifications that specifically reassured customers that social security numbers were not leaked. The contradiction suggests that T-Mobile willfully hid details of the data breach from the most vulnerable to identity theft. Perhaps most egregious among allegations claiming that T-Mobile did not take basic steps to properly safeguard data was a complaint that the company did not rely on industry standard practice of data protection called rate limiting. Rate limiting is a way to stabilize servers from being hit with too many requests at once. By limiting how many requests a server can receive during a given time frame, it helps prevent resource starvation for normal users and blocks hackers from inundating servers with requests. Anyone who has ever been locked out while attempting too many failed logins in a row has experienced the effectiveness of this defense. One of the hackers behind the data breach, John Brins, claimed that, quote, none of T-Mobile's hacked servers had rate limiting enabled, unquote. Because of that, his brute force attacks submitting many passwords and phrases at once in hopes of guessing correct logins to break into T-Mobile's IT servers worked. The FBI found that instead of telling customers what happened, T-Mobile tried to buy the breach data, seemingly expecting the hacker would delete the database and the problem might disappear. Instead, Brin's co-conspirators kept on selling the data as more customers became notified by third parties rather than T-Mobile. The largest number of people affected weren't even current T-Mobile customers. Around 40 million were either former or prospective customers who had their names, birth dates, driver's licenses, and social security numbers stolen. Just shy of 8 million individuals who were current customers had that data stolen, plus their phone numbers and other identifying mobile information. Another 5 million customers had their names, addresses, birth dates, and phone numbers stolen. T-Mobile estimates the total number of people affected is around 76.6 million. Yeah, so this was a bad data breach. You know, breaches, unfortunately, are going to happen. Obviously, they did not do a good job of protecting this data in the first place. That is that is a major screw up. But their response to it really is the problem. And, you know, it, it's not a matter of who makes mistakes. We all make mistakes. Big companies make mistakes. Software has vulnerabilities. Hackers are going to find them. What it really comes down to is how these companies respond, uh, both technically and, uh, you know, from a PR perspective, letting people know and having transparency. And T-Mobile just did a horrible job here. All right, last article. This is from Tom's Guide, and this is about some very particular Android apps that is apparently laced with malware. A new malware strain capable of starting on its own after users download one of the affected apps has been discovered on the Google Play Store by research from the cybersecurity firm McAfee. 
Unlike other malicious apps that need to be opened first, apps that contain the hidden ads malware begin running malicious services automatically after being installed. They also continuously show advertisements on a victim's Android smartphone and are quite difficult to remove once installed. According to a blog post from McAfee's mobile research team, most of the apps containing this new malware are disguised as cleaner apps that delete junk files or help optimize battery life on Android devices. Delete these apps immediately. Below, you'll find a list of all 13 apps which contain the hidden ads malware along with the number of times they've been downloaded from the Play Store. I'm going to read the list of apps and then give how many uh, downloads each one has just for reference. Junk Cleaner, 1 million plus. Easy Cleaner, 100,000 plus. Power Doctor, 500,000 plus. Super Clean, 500,000 uh, plus. Full Clean Clean Cash, 1 million plus. Fingertip Cleaner, 500,000 plus. Quick Cleaner, 1 million plus. Keep Clean, 1 million plus. Windy Clean, 500,000 plus. Carpet Clean, 100,000 plus. Cool Clean, 500,000 plus. Strong Clean, 500,000 plus. And Meteor Clean, 100,000 plus. Despite the fact that they contain malware, all of these apps managed to slip past Google's defenses and end up on the Play Store. Fortunately, though, McAfee shared its findings with the search giant and they have all since been removed. However, you will need to manually delete them from your Android smartphone. Although downloading and installing an app without opening it is normally safe, this isn't true in this case. When you install any of these apps on your devices, they automatically launch the hidden apps, hidden ads malware and begin operating in the background. At the same time, these malicious apps are capable of hiding themselves to prevent users from noticing and deleting them. For instance, they change their icon to a Google Play icon users are familiar with and change their name to either Google Play or setting to remain undetected. The first thing you should do is check the list above and make sure none of these apps are installed on your smartphone or Android tablet. From here, you should uninstall them and consider using one of the best Android antivirus apps. There's a link in there. That's, that's a product push on your phone to remove any malware that may have been left behind. You should also ensure that Google Play Protect is enabled on your devices as it constantly scans the apps installed on your smartphone for malware and warns you if you're about to install a suspicious app. While you shouldn't install apps from unknown sources, malware can and often does end up in the Play Store despite Google's best efforts. This is why you should stick to apps from well-known brands with good reviews and high install counts, though I mean, if I saw something with, something with a million installs, I would think that would be high. If an app comes from an unknown developer, it could be fine, though it might be malicious. All right, so there's not a lot to say about this except be careful what you install, but this is going to lead right into my tip of the week. And that is deleting your way to security. Somewhere along the line, especially with a lot of free apps or apps with free trials, honestly, some apps that just came with your PC, if you're a Windows user, that happens a lot, that we never think about, that we forgot that we installed, uh, and therefore never uh, uninstall. All software has bugs. So the more software you have, the more bugs you have. That's just math. Fortunately, the reverse is also true. The less software you have, Statistically speaking, the less bugs you should have. That is, if you delete software, you should be making yourself more secure. So in the cybersecurity world, we call this reducing your attack surface. And so here's the deal. It's not, it's not just a matter of, you know, app A or app B having a specific vulnerability and being a problem. When you add new functions and features, they also have interactions. And very often what you'll find is that it's not just app B that has the problem. It's that app B has some interaction that was either unforeseen or untested with app A. So it's really a permutation problem. So it's not an additive thing. It's a multiplicative thing. 
So this is the classic n squared problem. So if you put two dots on a piece of paper, you can draw one line between them. If you put three dots on a piece of paper, you can draw three lines, you know, in between each of the three pairs of, of things. And you keep adding, you, n goes up, the number of points on the paper go up, you get an n squared number of connections between them. So if you have n apps on your phone, there are potentially n squared interactions between those apps. And they may not interact at all, but they may have some weird software vulnerability that allows them to be chained together to do uh, to allow bad guys to get up to something uh, nefarious. So my tip of the week is I'm going to implore you to go to your computers and your smart devices. And honestly, even like your smart TVs, if you've got a bunch of apps installed in there because they have apps too, or channels or whatever they call them for your particular device, delete anything you're not using. So on a Mac, you want to go to your applications folder. I would put it in list view so you can actually see the details about each of the one of those. In particular, you want to look at the last modified column. You might even sort that and go for the really old ones. So the old ones there would be the ones that have not been updated recently. Now, it may be that that particular app needs to be launched in order to, you know, check for updates. So if you haven't used it for a long time, but you think you might still want to keep that app, then you might want to launch it and do a check for updates and see if that uh, application has a newer version of software. But if you find these apps that you have not used for a really long time, just delete them. And on a Mac, you can almost always just drag it to the trash and get rid of it. Now, there are some other ones in Adobe, I'm looking at you, uh, that require a dedicated uninstaller app. Uh, it usually comes with the app. So if, if you're in the applications folder, like the Adobe Photoshop uh, or Photoshop Elements or whatever, uh, there's usually a whole folder there. And if you dig into that folder, you'll find the uninstaller there. But there's another thing I want to point you to called App Cleaner. It's a free Mac app that if you just, instead of dragging your app to the trash, if you drag your app onto this app, it will actually go through and find, sometimes these apps install little tendrils other places, and this app is good at finding all those things and doing a full clean uninstall. But for the most part on a Mac, you can just drag it to the trash and get rid of it. On Windows, you need to go into settings. You need to search on add and remove programs. Go into there and it will show you the list of apps that are on your on your. PC. Uh, again, you might want to sort by date, find the really old ones uh, and get rid of those, but get rid of anything you don't need. Uh, click on the app. It should then expose an uninstall button and either Windows will just directly uninstall it or it might launch a dedicated uninstaller app. And then you know there may be further instructions given there about how to finish the uninstall. Obviously, before you do any of these things, I would back up, <laughs> back up your computer uh, just in case. But in almost all cases today, you can re-download an app. If you purchased it once, as long as you have the the, the purchase key for it, uh, the product key, uh, you should be able to re-download and reinstall that app. Now, luckily on uh, mobile devices, it's actually a, a little simpler. If you got an iPhone or iPad, you can delete any one app just by pressing and holding, you know, tapping on that app's icon and holding and it'll well, bring up a menu. And then you could say, you know, remove app. But if you know you're going to do a bunch of them, pick any app you want to remove, do that same thing. And when the menu comes up, another option under that menu would be to edit home screen. And then all your apps start jiggling. And then they all have a little minus sign in the upper corner. Now you can just go through and tap that little minus sign on any apps you want to get rid of. Be sure you also look into folders. If you've got folders of apps, you know, go through your different screens, make sure you're scrolling around to find all those apps and you go through them all and just delete anything you're no longer using. On Android, there's a couple ways you can do it. You can just go into settings and under settings, you can select, uh, select apps, you know, find the app you want to delete and then click on install from there. Uh, you could also go to the Google Play Store uh, and in the Play Store, if you click on, click on your profile icon at the upper right, you could tap on manage apps and devices and then manage. And then from there, you can delete or uninstall them as well. 
Now, one more thing I'm going to recommend you do that you might not be thinking about is browser plugins. If you've got a web browser, particularly on a computer where plugins are more supported, but somewhat on uh, mobile phones now too, there are add-ons or extensions or plugins or things that you can use to enhance the web browser in some way. For example, one of the ones that I'm going to recommend you honestly remove is like Honey, which is an extension that helps you find good deals on stuff. Well, you know, it's a privacy nightmare. But these little plugins are little bits of code. They're like they're kind of like little apps that run in your browser and they have access to a lot of stuff, potentially seeing your browsing history. Some of these things that are malicious will actually try to, you know, capture credit card numbers or crypto wallet numbers or other information that you might be entering into forms. Some of these plugins have access to whatever you're doing on that web browser and not just you know, on the on the app or the service where it makes sense. It could be all your web pages. So, uh, and it's a little different for each one. Actually, I've got a blog article for this. If, so if you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and look for the top article there right now, uh, there's links in there that will show you for each of the major browsers how to find and delete uh, plugins. And one thing you could do Uh, with browsers in particular is there's often a way to disable it before deleting it. So if you're not sure, you can disable it first, see how things go, and then eventually delete it. Another one more caveat is that a lot of these things, especially on Windows, it seems some of these apps have really weird names, like they're not obvious what they're doing. And so you might look at this app and say, I don't know if I need that. Do I need that? Do Do I ever use that? I don't know what that is. If you're not sure, especially if it's got like Windows or Microsoft in the name, you know, don't go willy nilly deleting it look it up on the web, you know, search for that app name on the web. And you know, what does this app do? Uh, And you'll get some more information there. Uh, And by the way, if you try to delete Windows apps or Apple apps or Google apps, sometimes they will let you do that. They didn't always used to. uh, But you'll probably note that a lot of those apps will just come back after a major upgrade. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of whack-a-mole. You can delete those if you really want to, if you want to save some space, I wouldn't worry about them so much, you know, from a security standpoint. But if you do delete them, just know that after a a major operating system upgrade, a lot of them will probably come right back. All right. So there you have it. There is your news and your tip of the week. All right. Next week, we've got an interview show. I'll be talking with Donarash Takwar about basically content moderation. And it's kind of a euphemism, really. But in order to moderate content, in a lot of cases today... That means you need to not have end-to-end encryption or you need to violate some privacy. So we're going to talk about content moderation, how it can sometimes turn into censorship and how it can violate your privacy and on some aspects of that. So that'll be next week. So I will be at DEF CON this week. Uh, the main days are Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, so on Thursday, which should be kind of a down day, kind of a getting settled kind of a day, I think in the afternoon, Thursday, I'm going to try to find some nice bar, probably somewhere off the Vegas Strip, to gather some you know, some, some patrons, some, some challenge coin holders, and maybe some other friends of the pod and get them out and just have some drinks and do a little socializing. I will announce that certainly in discord for my patrons. So if you're a patron, keep an eye on that. And that I, you know, for people I know that are not on discord that I also want to reach out to, I'll probably just find someone to reach out to them directly. So you will be contacted, but if you are interested in coming, if you're going to be in Vegas during that time, and you would like to get together and maybe come to the bar and have some drinks on Thursday afternoon, Shoot me a DM on Twitter, maybe, or or shoot me an email. You can find content information on my website. Really looking forward to this trip. It's going to be so much fun. Cannot wait. And I will have lots of stories to tell, I am sure, when I get back. All right, everybody, that'll wrap it up for this week. So until next week, as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.